Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is your host, Ryan Williams. Before we get into the show, I want to invite everyone to my South by Southwest panel this Friday. I'm so excited. I love going down to Austin to meet everyone at South by Southwest Interactive. I'm speaking on Friday at 3.30 at the Hilton in downtown Austin, hosting a podcast panel called Podcasting Growing Up, Community and Monetization with some amazing guests. We'll be doing a meetup afterwards. So find me at South by Southwest March 11th this Friday. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. This is Ryan Williams. So glad you're here for this episode. A quick reminder to leave an iTunes review if you like this episode. Would love to hear what you think. And reviews help people find the show in iTunes. My guest for episode number 83 is David Nihill, author of the best-selling book, Do You Talk Funny? Like many of you all listening to the podcast, David Nihill was terrified of performing in front of crowds. So to get better at public speaking, David did the unthinkable. He immersed himself into the stand-up comedy world for an entire year. He performed at comedy clubs like Cobbs in San Francisco, The Improv, and the world-famous comedy store in Los Angeles. So now he's gotten over his fear of public speaking. He now hosts business conferences, regular performs stand-up comedy, and wins storytelling competitions through the moth in front of packed houses. David has a seven-step basic framework for how you can become funnier as a public speaker and general talker at events. As many of you know, I am a former stand-up comedian, so this episode has a soft spot in my heart. The key principles of stand-up comedy can be applied to speaking engagements, presentations, or even just giving PowerPoints in front of your boss at work. So you you spent a year pretending to be a stand-up comic. Pretend, yeah, pretending to be an accomplished comedian to get over a fear of public speaking, which I know sounds like an absolutely terrible plan. Uh, and I can assure you it was an absolutely terrible plan. Um, but it, it wasn't easy to get booked as a, a new comedian without much experience. So I kind of made it look like I'd been around for a while to get bookings in festivals and comedy clubs and, and storytelling shows and some of the NPR series and, and some big festivals out there. So, yeah, I had a whole fake stage name, Irish Dave, uh, which very original, obviously, being called Dave and being from Ireland wasn't exactly a great source of creativity, but tended to work pretty well. Were so you, I did it for a whole year. Where did you perform? Oh, everywhere. I mean, uh, as I'm in California, as you know, I did a lot of tours around from the comedy store to the improv to the punchline to Cobbs to festivals like the Kansas City Festival to some of the comedy festivals around L.A., story, multiple storytelling shows. I got on a couple of comedy tours with some of Ireland's best comedians, which was pretty cool. Um, but yeah, all in a very short amount of period of time. And as you know, I'm a, a former stand-up comedy performer myself it is thankless work yeah there's nothing harder in life in any sort of environment that you need to elicit laughs from people when someone's had a bad day at work they go to a comedy club like Cobbs. they've paid 10 15 bucks they have two beers in front of them two two room temperature bud lights some chicken wings and it's your job to make them laugh. Can you explain <laughs> yeah. what it's like to deal with someone who's had a terrible day at the office? Their husband's mad at them. They the kid, you know, was sick from school, so the kid's miserable. Like the the people that come into comedy clubs are looking for that one very extreme emotion of laughter, and it's your job to give them this laugh. What is that like? Yeah, well, as you can imagine from that description, it's a lot of pressure because you have about 12 seconds on average before they decide even if they're going to listen to you anymore or not. And obviously, it's quite a different and a stark contrast to a business environment where people are just <laughs> basically trapped there and not likely to give you their vocal feedback after downing some chicken wings and some Bud Light. <laughs> so it, it is definitely a pressure scenario, but it's one that forces you to be quite concise with your words. I mean, it's, it's nearly the exact opposite of business speaking. As you'll know, in comedy, you probably heard the expression, uh, tight five is better than a sloppy 15. Like in business, it's all sloppy 15s. In comedy, because they're so judgmental and so quick to lose and their attention or focus on you in any way, shape, or form, that you got to be pretty fast. you got to get to it. you got to have confidence in the stuff you're going to say. And you generally have to have the first 30 seconds pretty scripted out just to make sure you get off to a good start. But it's certainly a lot of pressure. And I think if you could deal with stand-up comedy and, you 
you know, it's most people's worst nightmare to have to be in that scenario. And it certainly was mine. So obviously to go into doing a business conference after doing that, it's nothing really in comparison. You're like, it's literally speaking like to happy dolphins that are just yeah. like going back like flipper and clapping it's, it's their hands. puppy dogs and ice cream. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, the standard of the average business conference is just so tragically low. Most people are asleep, mildly unconscious or are wishing they were somewhere else. Uh, if you inject any bit of humor or personality or anything that might lend itself to waking people up a bit, uh, you're quickly kind of affirming yourself as the hero of the day. But very different to stand-up comedy, which, as you rightly say, brings a lot of pressure with it. Yeah, I don't necessarily recommend performing stand-up to people um, unless they really have a desire to get on stage and really bear themselves to a bunch of strangers. But I think in the end, to your point, there is something about the the, the live action and interaction with the crowd that really keeps you on your toes. And you talk about how you had a, a 30 second intro that you usually did. I had a cocktail napkin that I would bring up on stage and I put my beer or my water on it. And that was my set list. Yeah. Oh yeah. I had to cheat because it was, it's hard once you have hundreds of eyeballs looking at you. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I learned very quickly. I got lucky and a comedian friend of mine told me about a memorization technique called the memory palace. And I was always amazed how many performers, anybody I met basically over the year didn't use it. And it's basically just creating a little story in your mind and pre um, placing them in a location you're familiar with. So you literally nearly draw it out like a little blueprint, uh, blueprint of a house. And your set becomes or your presentation becomes you literally just walking through your house and encountering memories you've planted there and when I learned that you get way better in much in, in a very quick manner because that big fear about going blank on stage all of a sudden you take that weight off your shoulders because you know you're not going to forget Wait, what do you it. mean going through a house like just yeah so literally like I, I, you take any keywords you have so rather than have a bullet point list of reminders I would create a wacky story in as lewd imaginary fashion as I can for every point on that list and then I will literally in my mind place that memory in a room in my house so that my talk or my performance now becomes me doing a lap around my house in a sequential order just walking in and out of rooms and your mind remembers locations and it remembers stories much better than it remembers anything else so if I need to talk about the GDP of Mexico in a business presentation, I literally create a wacky story about me opening the door to my house and straight away there's a Mexican guy there and he's on a donkey and he's got tequila in both hands and for some reason he has no pants on whatsoever and he has the number 35 written on a football jersey and that's the 35%. That's the key I need to talk about to start my talk talking about Mexico and then he turns around, rides off into the next room and it encounters basically my next bullet point and I've created a little imaginary story also for that bullet point to help me remember it. So it's basically the same techniques that rapid language acquisition guys use to study yeah. languages and get fluent in multiple ones really, really quickly. Well, I think that is a great point. And just for everyone listening, we all did hear that the, the guy was pantsless. He was so, pantsless. And the more lewd, nude, naked, the more crazy okay. stuff that's going on there, the more Angelo, Angelina Jolie's and Elvis's you stick in there or Adele's or any famous character. So if you're talking about someone called Adele, that doesn't become Adele your friend. That's Adele the singer in your mind. And you just literally make it as unlikely a story as possible. So would and that situation be like you talk about the GDP, you're like putting your slide or your idea into the context of this room? Yeah, I'm, I'm putting, I'm creating a little story within this room, which is now my slide. So point number one, topic number one is this crazy story. And I just, anytime in, on, while I'm on stage, if I need to think about where I am, I'm never looking for a key word, which is very hard for your mind to remember. I'm just trying to say, am I in the kitchen? Am I in the hallway? How far through my journey am I? And what did I put in this room? And what's, so this, like, te what's this technique called? Uh, called the Memory Palace. It's pretty well covered in a book by Joshua Four called Moonwalking with Einstein, uh, which was a big bestseller and one of the better books you'll read. But it's very, very cool. So it, it works for language learning. It yeah, works I remember when you're on stage. Pneumatic devices. Exactly, it's, mnemonic memory devices. Yeah, it so sounds similar to that. Where like I was trying to study like vocabulary words in college and high school for tests, and it was like think of a weird scenario with like impediment right like that's a word you're not going to remember but yeah you know exactly you know you I, I give you a pretty epic example for it it's from benny lewis and he's the only irish guy i know since james joyce to speak 12 languages 
So he knows what he's talking about. But for the word in Spanish, for example, uh, to fit is caber. And if you're just trying to memorize Spanish words, it's pretty hard to remember that. But if you break that up into two components and two words that sound more familiar to you as an English speaker, so you have cab and bear. Now I create a little story of a New York taxi driver in his big yellow old school cab pulls yeah. up and a bear tries <laughs> to get into the cab and like he tries to get in the window and he doesn't fit. So his big hairy bottom is sticking out the window. Now you have a little story the bear can't fit in the cab cab bear cab bear means to fit yeah your chances of forgetting that are pretty low it just takes about one to two seconds to recall it because your mind has to process the story but that's plenty time on stage for for me it's like the hardest part though is i could get my jokes out i could tell them my jokes weren't that great i'll be completely honest my wife (laughs) at the time who's now my then my girlfriend urged me to not your wife is now your girlfriend yeah that's a seriously bad joke you must have been we uh i told that joke no i never told that joke that was the worst joke ever and uh i uh essentially i i hate talking about it like i get even like even now i'm mixing up words because it's a kind of embarrassing and i cringe even thinking about why or how i performed and i met my girlfriend through comedy you know, the funny thing is, I, I think a lot of the comedians who bomb sometimes are a lot of comedians who have negative memories of what they tried, or a lot of them. It's dictated a lot, I think, by the, the television cycle in America for judging the, the success of a comedian is that coveted five-minute late-night TV show right. appearance. And that forces your material to be very observational, very Jerry Seinfeldish, like very short, very witty. It doesn't really allow you to tell a whole lot of stories, whereas what happens when you become a headlining comedian and you have more time to fill your doing hour shows they end up mining their own life for stories and they put a bit more of their themselves on the stage in those stories because they're telling people more about themselves and to be honest people just love as we were talking about earlier they just love listening to stories and that when you tell a story there's no moment where you're trying to be funny it just happens to be funny and worst case if the story isn't funny people still enjoy listening to the story so what happens in comedy is you don't bomb like you don't have that groan moment where the audience are just like oh that was rubbish like you were visibly trying to be funny and that's why it's very powerful for the world of business speaking because you're literally just telling a story and if you can word it in a way using comedic techniques so you save the funny part to the end you quickly know where the funny is and you really are concise on the amount of words to tell the story and tee up the funny part with maximum impact all of a sudden your chances are being funny without much risk of looking like you were trying to be funny and failing uh, they, well, that's they almost like the key it right is you yeah you have to there's a great book uh i used to study improv yeah and it's called the truth in comedy and it's written yeah, by um del close and a lot of the early improv pioneers in chicago that trained a- amy poehler and tina fey and um belushi and they uh talk about how it's like you when you try hard to be funny like in conversations no one laughs exactly so when you're talking in front of big groups you need to find the truth in what you do and be authentic to what you're actually in the moment with. And actually making observations and talking to people and hearing them and the whole yes and you know, theory that like whenever you're an improv scene, you say yes, and this is what I want to bring to the table. You know, there's something about like being yourself is a lot more funny than trying to script things. So how did you be yourself on stage when you actually had pre-scripted jokes? Yeah, well, I didn't have pre-scripted jokes. I honestly, I, I know I had a whole list of stories that I enjoyed telling that I thought were funny. And all I had to do then was trying to make them more concise. So eliminate words, figure out where people normally laugh. And to be honest, you can do that without actually getting on a comedy stage. If, if you're listening to this now and going, all right, this is great. There is no way whatsoever yeah, I'm right. ever doing comedy, which is fair enough. I wouldn't yeah. advise it to a lot of people. No, but you, if you literally just have short stories that you tell with your friends, just work to make them tighter and more short form where's the key funny element to it and just put that key funny element at the end of it so like they were stories that i'd been telling anyway the only difference now is i had to try and get comfortable telling them on a stage and connect them in a way that makes sense to people and really delaying the funny bit on until the end of the sentence because i think that's what undoes a lot of people in especially in business land because they get the laugh they weren't expecting it there's a great expression that says uh, the end of laughter is followed by the height 
state of listening. So if you make somebody laugh, they're all ears because they want to hear the next bit of hear, laughter. They lean in and want to hear what's next. Yeah, 100%. They want that shot of dopamine again. And if you make somebody laugh and you start talking again, they're so keen to listen to you that they literally automatically shut up. They stop clapping. They stop making noise. They stop applauding and they listen again. So as a business speaker or a comedian, the easiest thing you can do to make it look like your delivery is really awesome is structure your story and your sentence so the key word is at the very end so that that's the surprise that's the little flip of expectations that's the funny bit and then you naturally have built in a pause where you just stop and allow people to react to it so let's actually jump into uh to the business component of this so your people listening you know have jobs and they want to maybe increase their visibility or their platform or speak at conferences when you're transferring over your comedy experience or telling stories for the audiences, like we talked about in, we're joking that the barrier of entry is low for jokes at work conferences. Like Very low. Being moderately clever gets you a long way because people are starved for They are bored funny. out of their minds most of the time. And so what, what kind of advice do you give people to just, they don't have to go out of their way to be the next Seinfeld or Chris Rock. They can just be a version of themselves. It's a little funnier. Yeah, 100%. Like if you copy Chris Rock style, that's probably going to get you thrown out of a conference. So that's not the best thing to replicate. But what you want to look at is the This conference is so white. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I could do some bad impersonations there, but I'll save you guys of them. (laughs) Already bad enough having a dodgy Irish accent. But it's just if you look at the techniques he's using and not his style and you apply them to what you're doing. So literally, if you get up there and you aim not to be funny, but just to be fun. So it doesn't have to be the most punched up effective story you've ever told. But the fact if you start with a story that tells some people a little bit about yourself, very similar to what a comedian will do. If they're like me and they have an accent, they'll acknowledge it up front. If they look at a certain way, they're going to acknowledge it because they they know the audience is thinking that. But if you start with a, a little couple of stories about your product, about the problem that it solved, about the craziest customer you ever had in solving their problem because obviously if you have a product or you're in business you're solving a problem for somebody at the start of your pitch or your presentation I just want to hear about that problem solved I don't want to see the data points behind it I want to be able to relate to you and relate to your story and it, you know you can do that in a nice funny easy way or literally if you've used the memory palace technique so you're pretty relaxed before you go on stage you just watch the tree speakers before you and if anything funny happens in those talks reference it and the all of a sudden everyone loves yeah, the callback the callback easiest way to get a laugh ever and most business presenters I mean we've all been in a scenario where we've seen a business presenter go on stage and he talks about something that some guy talked about just before him and you're like how does he not know that the, the guy just talked about yeah. this in depth and he doesn't know because he was backstage looking over his notes and he wasn't relaxed and he hadn't memorized this and maybe he left it last minute but a huge advantage in comedy I use it all the time I use it in storytelling I use it when I'm hosting conferences or or speaking myself I watch the tree people for me if you go back any further than tree people don't tend to remember as quickly and you don't get a laugh but the tree speakers before you is a very easy way to get laughs a lot of comedy is listening yeah yeah, what the audience wants or already knows Absolutely. And it makes it look like what you did is impromptu because it is in the moment between you and them. But I mean, I would say worst case, you literally just add memes, add funny images to your presentation, show videos that are already socially proven. So you know they're funny already, just include them. I and almost key- always start off my talks with a video of yeah. someone I'm talking about that's much funnier than anything I will say during the talk. Yeah, and I think using any form of other people's funny or images that are already socially proven funny, it takes a large amount of the risk out of it for you. And I think the only mistake the average business presenters make when they do that is they show the image, they reveal it, and then they try and say something funny about the image, and it doesn't land like it should. And they don't realize that when you use an image in this case, the image is the funny bit. The image right. is the punchline, and you have to set up that image in a way that allows those people a flip of expectations and to laugh a bit so you literally just build it up you're like all the frustration i had last year with this product everything i've said today everything boils down to this one image and that image can be anything 
and now they're going to laugh and react to it. But if you show that image and then try and say the same things afterwards, the laugh is never as strong. But it, it's a good, easy way just to get laughs. Like literally, we were hired at one stage by a number of companies just to last minute come in and try and make talks more engaging at one stage with the company I had when we started out. And we just put in GIFs and memes and funny images. And, and rather than tell someone how you feel, we showed them with an image and, and they all got laughs. And so, so starting with the story... Yeah, starting with a story and I think, about I think yourself. You brought something really fascinating that I agree with about get to the point at the end, right? Get to don't show the data because no one cares how you got there; they just care what the end result is. Yeah, and, and we the get data down with icing on the cake. Like, the, yeah, there's nothing worse than that. someone that you you watch speak and they give you every detail. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, when you're pitching something, of course, these guys have been trained to think that, yeah, they're VCs, they only care about the numbers, but if you just pitched a bunch of VCs or you just presented something solely based on numbers and everybody else did the same thing that day, you're giving them something that although they say they want it, their mind can't actually process or remember it. So you literally start with that customer story, the pain point that you solved, a bit about yourself, market opportunity, numbers are the icing on the cake, that's it. Like That's the sequence you need to follow. Do that's you practice the structure. your stories? Like, how do you... Hone it. Like, let's say you don't have a, a friend or a group you can practice around. How do you get better? Yeah, you're, you're kind of going to have a lonely existence if you don't have any friends. <laughs> Hopefully, to someone who's going to listen to you. But honestly, like all the stories I have, I have told before to friends and family or I've told in a bar. Um, I do, if I have a big speaking event coming up, I will go and practice them in some sort of open mic format, public speaking, storytelling night. Uh, the MOT, the NPR storytelling series is very good for going along and sharing a story. So I will try and get on stage and test them a bit, especially if I'm doing a big pressure. What about people that, like, I, for me, I, I do a lot of speaking for free yeah, or for very small fees because I want to get my reps in and I want to practice. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and the funny thing is, I did that yesterday in a library. I am doing another one uh, tomorrow, and it's all because I have a Google Author Talk, for example, next week. So I know that's going to be on camera. I know there's a bit more pressure to that. And you know from doing comedy that it, it literally you get very rusty very fast if you haven't been on stage in a while. And of course, I stupidly wrote a book on public speaking and put the word funny on the cover, uh, and I hadn't been on stage for five months. So now, if you turn up and you're not funny, they're just like, Phew. yeah, they're they're nope. booking you to be funny <laughs> yeah the worst plan i ever had especially in big bold yellow letters on there but it makes a massive difference so getting out in front of any crowd yeah, exactly anywhere and if it's 10 people who cares like i think i i have a contributor badge for ink at the moment and that came from not my writing skills that came from giving a talk giving a talk for six people for free somewhere and one of them just happened to write for ink wrote an article and all these things happen. So you, you never know. If you're telling a story, you might not remember the six or 600 people that were listening to you. But if you do a good job, they will remember you. Yeah, there's always elements where you get in front of a crowd and you can't predict what's going to happen. And every crowd's different. That even if you're doing it and it's for six people, you're that much better for it. And I, I always talk about getting your reps. Like you need to work out, you need to like doing comedy You've got to go open mic nights before you can headline the improv. Oh, 100%. And I think a lot of people get caught up with, oh, I, I may not get paid to speak or, you know, I'm not going to get paid enough. And you're not necessarily going to make a career out of public speaking. It's often part of what you do. Yeah, exactly. And you just happen to turn up and be really good at it, the more reputation you get in it. And the average person is winging it. The average person has no practice. The average business speaker has no entertainment value. Exactly in there. right. So you, you can stand out really So your quickly. edge is that much bigger, even though it could be just a minor. You're a, oh, it's, it's huge. Like doing we, a, one callback. I mean, callbacks aren't even always that funny, but just the fact that the they're, yeah, they're, is they're that never so, funny. If yeah. you write it out and analyze it, not funny the in the moment, it, always funny. Yeah, you just sort of give them the credit that they like, were observant enough. Oh, it, it, it's probably the easiest way to get laughs within any form of presentation. If someone sneezes, just say, you all right, that sounded yeah, a bit severe. Right. They're going to laugh. Like, it's just that nervous interaction in it. So I always say to people, don't be, like, get the get your structure down. Use the memory palace to walk through in the order you want to hit. Memorize your opening 30 seconds. Not religiously, but know it pretty much off by heart. Know you're closing. And then don't be afraid just to do stuff in the moment. If anything happens, somebody falls over. Like, embrace improv in the 
the middle of that talk and stick to your structure. So love it, you know. And and over time, people are going to sneeze, people are going to fall over, people are going to ask you similar questions, and all of a sudden, you're making something look very much in the moment and that isn't quite. So a great example of that. I don't know if you've read the book Originals by Adam Grant. It just came I haven't out. read it yet. No, I want to. He talks very much about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And he's like, well, the quote, I have a dream in that particular famous speech, he didn't write it into the speech. He didn't plan on saying it. Somebody was shouting at him behind the stage going, tell them about the dream. Tell them about the dream. And eventually he included it, even though he didn't plan on it. But that year alone, they estimate he had given 350 public speaking appearances, which is uh, about as much as you're ever going to do on public speaking, obviously. Uh, But he had also referenced that in the past. So something that was very impromptu and in the moment was actually pretty much tried and tested he'd used it before he'd referenced it before he knew people like it so he didn't plan on saying it that day and i think that's the key with a lot of great business and comedy talks that you get so accomplished on stage you're doing stuff that's impromptu and in the moment but you've probably done that at some stage before and I think the best comedians that are known just for, you know, as riffing comedians, like ones that just make stuff up on the spot, uh, that's it's a very much a rehearsed spontaneity. So it right. looks in the moment, but it's not the really. The best ones that have the, um, the crowd interactions where someone starts yelling or making noise, they can deal with the hecklers because they've written jokes to deal with hecklers. Oh, 100%. And like hecklers, you know, people are always worried about hecklers, but nearly the easiest way, as you know, to deal with hecklers, whatever they said, just pause and repeat it and then pause. And if it's any way silly what they said, just by repeating what they've said will normally get you a laugh nine times out of ten. Yeah, I have, the hecklers don't really exist in the business world as much, but you, you sometimes get people that try to control the conversation and they keep raising their hand or they keep asking yeah. questions. What I sometimes do, and I, I love to hear your, your thought about this is, I bring them out a little bit and then I sometimes call them out and say, well, oh, you're that one guy that always has to be the contrarian. Yeah, or you can just say like, hey, John, I appreciate your question. We're going to have to exchange emails or agree to continue this conversation in the pub because we have lots of other ones. I'm happy to take question more from you after. And then just so you acknowledge straight, that, that, that. Yeah, you acknowledge that you're going to deal with the questions at some stage. It doesn't have to be in the moment and on you go. Or if they're really becoming annoying and it's difficult, you can quite shut them off in a nice way or just pretend like you misinterpreted the question. So intentionally misinterpret the question and kind of make light of it. And, and those guys tend to calm down a bit. Um, and so then how do you, you know, talking about in your book is you, you talk about finding the funny, adding humor and it's, and you reference that in Ireland, there's only one drinking game. It's called life. <laughs> yeah. And to, to make a callback, which may, which may not be funny is I met my wife at a bar called Nanny O'Brien's, which was Irish in Washington DC where I was performing stand-up comedy. And the people that were the bartenders there were the drunkest, Imaginable people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, they must they must have been Americans. No, they Is that were, what you're trying to say? No, they were these. <laughs> they were. Uh, they were just joking. I, I think they were born in Ireland. Some were born here, but, but yeah, they they were they they partied like no tomorrow. So. Well, yeah, we've been known to indulge in the occasional party, but we've also been known to indulge in witticisms and storytelling. Exactly. I I think a lot of the stuff I was stumbling into was, you know, it comes maybe a little bit more centrally to the culture we have over there. Like, as I said, even with your question at the start, when when I was traveling around Ireland with a friend last year, I asked my friend to note how many times somebody asked him what they did for a living over a three-week period, and only one person asked him, and that was a hitchhiker we picked up from America. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, along the way. So it's pretty funny. We, we go for the story first and then everything else. Yeah. So. But I, I think it's just a great way of connecting with anyone and anything, whether you're doing it in public speaking or whether you're applying this on your own life outside of being on stage. But it's just central to being memorable. And if you've just created a product or solve a problem or you're volunteering your time to give a talk, if you go and you don't leave them with something memorable, then they can't take any action on, on everything you've just said. So memorability trumps everything in public speaking uh, and also passion about your topic, obviously. But if you can lighten it up and increase the engagement and we know humor works in public speaking like that's not even debatable and i think most people will acknowledge stand-up comedians as a true masters of public speaking if you look at like malcolm gladwell's Ten Thousand hours to make a master and i guess my whole experiment was just to say well listen there isn't a lot of these business guys out there that obviously want to be comedians with good reason but they can still learn a lot from the practices comedians are using so we actually studied all the top ted talks and we found that every single one of the top 10 ted talks for example used 
uses humor and some of them were using humor on levels that were actually funnier on a laugh per minute basis than the funniest movies of all time and some of them were getting laugh levels like Ken Robinson's the, the top most viewed at the moment with 36 million views is very much using techniques from the world of stand-up comedy and storytelling the only difference is some of them don't know they're using techniques so if you don't know the techniques are there it's harder to replicate them fast and get let's good talk at about it. the joke funnel yeah, I mean, joke is that a technique is, that you're re- you're referencing right now? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, a joke funnel is more for you to create content and material from your own life that you know relates to as many people in the audience as you can. So, I get the most powerful thing you can ever do in storytelling is to allow the audience to see themselves within your story. So I'm in San Francisco at the moment. A lot of jokes say in San Francisco are about at the expense of Oakland sometimes, right? And, and some people love Oakland, some people don't. If I made a statement that said, Oakland is a crazy place, here's what happened to me there. I've just lost half the audience that doesn't agree with my opening statement that Oakland is a crazy place. They have their own opinions about it. Naturally, their mind is hardwired to argue with me. Now, if I'm Jerry Seinfeld or Louis C.K., which I'm very much not and never will be, I can probably bring that crowd back and make them laugh and even even maybe just get laughter even though they don't agree with my opinions and make them forget about that true pure comedy writing gold. The average business person has no pure comedy writing gold. So the joke funnel is a way for you to make a statement at the end that allows people to see themselves in your story, agree with you, and not argue with you. So for a good example of this, Ken Robinson's talk, literally with 36 million views, he's talking about how schools kill creativity. Then he tells a story about he moved with his family from England to America, and in particular his daughter or his son who was leaving behind his new girlfriend of four weeks. So on the face of it, that story has nothing to do whatsoever with his topic. He just likes telling it, and he's made that story work to make it more engaging. But using the joke funnel as a comedian, you rather than tell your story about moving from London originally, the statement you would make is being in a new place can be challenging. Arriving in a new place can be uncomfortable. Now everybody in the audience is on board and can relate to what I'm about to say because they all mostly agree with that statement. And then I tell them about my own particular experience. So the joke funnel is essentially making it as relevant to everyone as you can, then telling your particular story, telling it in the shortest, most effective form, using comedy writing techniques. So it's the minimum amount of words to get to the funny part and being ruthless about editing that and then just testing it out. And you just continually put stories through that funnel and try and find a way to make them work. And so when you talk about, you know, like, you, so you have a, essentially a seven step progression. Is it? Yeah, is I haven't, I have in the book, but there's probably about 80 or 90 tips uh, on different yeah. hidden within that. But then that's to, to kind of frame it in a structure where you're like, okay, how do I do this? Because yeah, exactly. if I tell people they can be funnier, most people are like, no, I'm not funny. But one thing in common that comedians always have is what they always get funnier. So like someone has been doing comedy for one year and somebody who has been doing comedy for seven years, no comparison. I mean, we've all seen people go on stage doing comedy that we're like, that guy is not funny whatsoever. How is he a comedian? I know a lot of people that I would say are like this, not naturally funny, not even a bit. And then they go on stage and they absolutely crush it. Um, so I, I think at the heart of that is improvements in their writing technique. And I think if you tell people they can be funnier, they'll be skeptical. But if you tell people they can become a better writer, I mean, we all know anyone who's written a book or with aspirations to do it or has read about the process knows with a little bit every day, you can become a better writer with, with concrete effort. I mean, what I wrote at the start of my book and what I wrote at the end, they weren't even comparable. Like by the end, I didn't even think they were my words anymore. I'm like, ooh, this isn't bad. Who wrote this? Uh, and at the start, I was like, well, this is garbage. And, and comedy has the same process to it. It can be improved if you take certain steps to improve it. And improving your writing is a huge component to that. And so when people are listening to this now, like what are, if you could just give them, you know, three, three tips that they could finish listening to this. And, you know, you mentioned writing as one and they could go out and start honing their craft. But, but like, how do people form the vision of like what they want to talk about and how they can incorporate comedy into that. Yeah, I think a lot of people will have a talk that they all plan on giving around their subject matter and expertise. And it's just a matter of literally 
taking out a smartphone or a device you have and writing on it and comedians are great at doing this just funny story file and the first day you'll be like i've got none like i've got no material here and then every time you see something funny because life has a tendency to show you funny stuff every day depending on where you are you see something funny you overhear a funny conversation you get an email that you think is ridiculous you literally just start to log that stuff in bullet point form on your phone and take note of it and that just keeps growing like i had nothing at the start and now is literally pages and pages like of what's stuff. the story you wrote early on in the, in the journey that you ended up telling at the moth or that you told it at conferences yeah i think well i mean you can shoehorn anything into a conference but the one i had at the final of the mod uh hopefully my mother will never pick up this podcast but it was about her experimenting and eating uh, cannabis cookies at the age of 39 so weed cookies here in america uh, and first time traveling out of ireland in a long time and ended up wearing lululemon yoga pants and uh, really embracing the culture a bit <laughs> like anything maybe a bit too much but like they're all just like quirky little things from your own and life you can work that into a business talk Oh, a hundred percent. I could work it. I put it. I have two or three pages of examples in the book where I wrote out wacky stories that on the face of it are nothing to do with business. And you're just looking for that opening statement. How do you, so I think, t- how do you tie back cannabis cookies to it? Like yeah. A, well, so here's an even wackier example. You're like a cannabis cookies. You're going to be doing experimentation. You're going to be doing new culture adaptation uh, challenges you need to overcome. So here's an even wackier one. Like, and I think I had this in the book was me at seven years old. Uh, urinating without surveying my surroundings and having uh, an argument with an electrical fence. So obviously a painful and memorable thing from my childhood. That's not a good thing to do if you're a guy uh, with obviously painful consequences. That has nothing to do with business. On the face of it, you're like, you urinated on an electrical fence, nothing got to do with business. But if I look for an excuse to tell that story, so I mean, if you literally try to mine for ways to tell that story in a business conference, quickly you'll come up with, well, you didn't know your surroundings. So you're like, if you have a new business idea and you enter the market without doing a full competitive analysis, you're going to learn a painful lesson. This happened to me when I was seven years old. Short story, literally punched up in, in comedic form. You know the key funny bit is the mention of electrical fence, and now you're back to your business talk again. So how does someone take that risk? Because you are experienced doing this, and I feel like if that you just went on your own path because you believe in what you do, but not everyone may not have the courage. How can you build yourself up to, to divulge a story like that? Yeah, true. And I mean, it doesn't have to be that one, but it, it's very, I mean, That's if you're, funny, but it's, if it's, you're uh, looking for funny experiences, just look for pain. So like, what's an embarrassing thing to happen to you? What's a painful thing to happen to you? Then go to your job. Like, who's the craziest customer I ever dealt with? What's the wackiest face? Like what happens? Even the more relatable it is, the better. So like my story in China is not going to win over an audience like my story with a guy who I yeah, Let's talk about the story in China and like how that works for you. Well, yeah, it works really well. But the funny thing is the crazy foreign stories are not as relatable as the everyday experience. So if my story is about my dad doing something silly with email or my parents not being able to work Skype and screaming at me on Skype, all of a sudden I have stories around new technology, new users, adaptation, customer manuals, instructions. like that. That's on the face of it, just a story about my parents not being able to figure out technology. But on a larger element, I can tell all sorts of stories there to would highlight other business lessons from so, that. So uh, in a lot of ways, people now that speak at business conferences or in their field, they don't tell those type of personal stories. Yeah, you, well, you'd be surprised. So Ken Robinson does nearly all of the but top he, 10 he's a pro, talks too. But he's, they're, they're pros, though. They're speaking at a global forum for a, that reason. Yeah, and you can recreate that really, really But most quickly. people, like when I go to a conference, I don't, I'm not a big fan of panels. Like I think... Yeah, that, panels are terrible. It's really hard. You talk over people and... Others, people pr- promote their own agendas. But, but usually, if there's a panel, I always think the one person that I like the best is the most real. Exactly. It's like that person I, didn't BS me. They just told me like the, the straight dope with like what they're working on. And yeah, and they probably told you a quick little story to synopsize it in, which makes you relate to the media. Or they tell more. you they don't like something. Like, oh, I'm going to tell you the truth. That thing is terrible. 
Yeah, 100%. But to, to be honest, like you can recreate these. I have friends who did no public speaking. I have a friend of mine, his third talk, his first talk ever was after Guy Kawasaki from uh, chief, former chief evangelist of Apple. Second talk got a mention in Forbes for using the same memory techniques that we've been talking about. His third talk was a TEDx talk uh, where he got a 51 second standing ovation. So you'll say that guy had no experience in public speaking and no background, but he was using the techniques that we've just been talking about. He what, put in there very personal and uh, his talk was on recovering or it was on celebrating the milestones in life the small achievements on the way to a big goal oh, nice. and so it was about spinal cord injury oh yeah probably, okay yeah so it, that was kind of central to the book he was a friend of mine he was the reason i ended up getting into public speaking unwittingly in the first place because it was to host a charity event that was in his honor but i think it's a great example of someone who doesn't have that background in public speaking but just is using these techniques knows they're the same techniques that are being used by top ted speakers and in all these viral videos and then applies it to his own talk and to be honest i have a a large group of friends who are, I know who are just literally sticking in memes and sticking in funny components or telling little short stories about how they felt when they overcame a certain challenge. Like, I don't want to hear about how you solve the problem in business terms in spectacularly successful fashion. I want to hear about how stressful it was and how horrendous you felt as you were tackling it. And that's just human nature. And so, But we, so many of us, we like, I think there's a projection of like, I need to tell you the end result of how awesome I am or like exactly. the successes and that I hate. have. And that's often yeah. the most boring element. Oh, it's boring and they'll hate you for doing it. And all you have to do to stand out in any conference is do the opposite. So say, you know what? This was terrible. My wife locked me out of the house for about a week. She wouldn't let me in whatsoever. Like I was so intense and caught up in this and, and here's how it went down. And like there doesn't always have to be funny in that. You're just looking for engagement and relatability and to be real. So you don't have to get too crazy with the stories. I can tell you about a conversation I have with a guy in a supermarket and build it into my talk and that will get a better reaction than some crazy story about me in Nepal doing all sorts of weird, st weird stuff from my mom doing weed cookies. What I, what yeah. I love, <laughs> weed cookies, that's a great callback. And that, yeah, that is a funny callback. Um, it's a true one. I loved it when I, when I went to a lot of stand-up comedy shows that like someone like, uh, you know, uh, Dave Chappelle would come and he was the best storyteller. And he would always talk about, when I was walking in DuPont Circle in front of this cozy Starbucks and then, you know, like the people tailor their acts, different cities and like put in different landmarks Yeah, and they 100%. would, you know, mention DuPont circle, but then, you know, there in San Francisco, they say, uh, lower it's hate. Yeah. It's a, it's a tenderloin. And I, I went to see him in San Francisco. He did the same thing. And, and presidents use the same technique. They, they pick a target for the joke or the story. And if it's an underperforming football team, that's local to that area, the next time they're in the next town, they swap in that local area reference. And I, if you're a regular conference speaker and you show the audience that's generally from that catchment area where you are, that you've taken the time to know a little bit about it, they will give you a much bigger reaction than anybody else that day what do you think about people listening that wonder if like should you acknowledge the crowd at first sometimes comedians do this and speakers where they ask people like hey where are you all from or raise your hand if you're in this business or yeah I, th I think it's useful it's an easy way to getting a level of engagement so like if i was giving a talk yesterday i asked him who here hates public speaking who here thinks they're naturally funny who doesn't and you could play around with it and it gives you a way to make it you'll up the engagement because the audience then know that you will call on them at some stage most likely and if you don't they're still fearful that you will and you've already just upped the engagement level you don't want to be cheesy about it but i would get to it um, definitely get into your talk. I would start with your introduction. So a lot of business guys don't get this right where they don't give a bio and insist a presenter sell them rather than then having to sell themselves. So if that person doesn't lift your, your achievements for you before you go on stage in a good succinct order, then a lot of business speakers end up having to sell themselves at the start of the talk. And that's like you reading your achievements and your resume. And that's really unlikable to do. Yeah. You don't want to have to do that in any way. So to, to write a bio that you can give to someone it really helps get a good, good intro oh it's huge and especially if you put your name only at the end and tell them to say your name only at the end so nearly all business conferences screw that up and they're like oh our next speaker is ryan ryan's a nice guy i first met ryan here ryan's been featured here and here ladies and gentlemen please give it up for ryan would never happen in a comedy show because what you're trying to do is build anticipation to who this amazing individual might be 
And once I give the name, the audience is getting ready to clap. So if I give that name repeatedly, I'm reducing the amount of laughter that that guy's going to get when he actually comes on stage in a business environment. Because what you want to do is build them up. So write your bio and put the words at the end and literally just hand it to the guy before you go on stage. And if he reads it, all the better than you reading it and you having to talk about it. So it's almost like you have to reintroduce yourself to the audience if you don't get that bio. Yeah, well, you're then they're trying to judge you, like, who is this guy and what did he do? And, and you nearly sometimes have to change your talk to tell them what company you work for. And it's not exciting. Like, ideally, you want to come out and start right it's in the store. It's not too different than, like, when you're at a dinner party and you say, hey, like, I want to meet that person over there. Or I'm at a work event and I want to meet that, that lady who runs this team at this company I want to work with. And then you ask your friends, hey, can you introduce me to that person? And there's a different context that comes with that versus... You can yeah, still 100%. go up and say, you can still introduce yourself to that lady and say hello, and it could very well work. But it's, yeah, but the, it's, the validation Im- improves at a huge yeah, amount. Yeah, and, and it's the same social proof, and it's the same reason an email introduction is more likely to get you somewhere than you cold email and people. Although I know we both use both <laughs> techniques both to good effect. all the time, right? And in yeah, the yeah. end, the result is just the result. And if you get it, it doesn't matter each way. But you're setting yourself up for more success if you can get that good intro. It's huge. And an audience, for a live audience, it's really key because you want to start in the action. You want to start in a story. You want to start with no fluff. You don't want to say, oh my God, there's so many of you. Great to be here today. It's my first time here because guess what? Nearly every other speaker did that that day and you're automatically not memorable. So just come out, get straight into it and have the MC sell you with your bio. Uh, If that is, if that's what you want to establish and talk about, it saves you having to do it. And you like a good image at the beginning or a video or something? Yeah, I, I like an image. I don't mind video as long as you set it up correctly and use it as the, the punchline. So you set it up and you let them know a little bit about yourself because um, otherwise it's kind of wacky if you're just standing there on stage, you play the video and they can be looking at you more than the video sometimes trying to figure out who you are and what you're doing. Uh-huh. Um, so it's good to have a word or two to set that up. But to be honest, it, it works both ways. I mean, everybody develops their own system for doing it. But it's just important that you get off to a strong start, you have your strong finish. Um, and I would say as business speakers, something they screw up, if you want to have a much better talk, do not finish on a Q&A. It's one of the most crazy things you can do because you don't control the ending to a questions and answers session. So when you design your talk, build in your Q&A five minutes from the end and say it to the organizers that you're going to moderate or you're going to control it and literally say, right, I'm going to take some questions before I make my conclusion. And then you, you're telling the audience that it's not going to go on forever. Plus, you keep a slide so that no matter what the questions are, if nobody asks a question, you don't feel awkward. You don't have that moment where you're standing on stage and no Nobody knows to applaud if it's over. You get really weak video and really weak applause. All of that is eliminated if you save a strong closing because otherwise you can't plan how the talk is going to end. It really is up to the audience and how interested they are. And these days, you know, someone's periscoping it, someone's videoing it, someone's putting it online somewhere. That saves you going out with a weak uh, round of applause because when they know it's over, you make your conclusion. Ideally, you save one slide to the end that has three key points from your talk to make it more memorable for your audience. You say thank you. They all applaud at the same time and everybody thinks you're a really good speaker. Yeah, sometimes the, it's awkward at the ending because then it's like, oh, okay, I answered that one question. Thanks. No, oh, it's, it's always awkward. And you'll see the host going, and so any questions for Ryan? And silence, like no yeah. questions at all. Maybe you back there. Oh, you were just yawning. Okay, sorry I about that. I haven't heard that technique before. I like it because in other, other ways you're sort of controlling it in a new way. Like you're showing Oh, 100%. Like, you're you're more memorable. You're showing them. Yeah, and you're showing them, you're, they'll think you're pretty slick because they're like, okay, that was a good idea. Even the other speakers that day will be like, oh yeah, that's good. I don't know why I don't so normally do you say do. That, do you say at the end like, hey, so I have a couple minutes left. I'm going to take some questions then finish up my talk? Exactly. No, I say I'm going to take a couple of questions now before I make my conclusion. Okay. Um, and then that way I'm okay standing on the, uh, in front of the audience for like 20, 30 seconds or encouraging them to ask some questions. And if they don't, I still finish really strongly. But like if you think about it, the big strong finishes from famed speakers like Steve Jobs, they controlled the ending and they always finished with their strongest bit. So you want to leave people with an action item. You want to leave it to be memorable. And if you go out with a Q&A, you can't do that. We've made a big compelling case here for how you could become a better speaker when what are the reasons why people should do it? If someone's listening and they don't think that they have the confidence or they don't see the value in how it can help their business. 
No, yeah, and you you can. I am the worst public speaker in history, or at least I was. It's it's a huge irony that I wrote a book to, about this topic, <laughs> worst plan ever, because now I, I get asked to speak about it a lot, and I do still try and avoid public speaking. But when I do it, you won't know that I hate being up there, or you won't know that I'm super uncomfortable, and you get very good at hiring that, looking hiding that, looking very polished, and leaving the audience with a more compelling, more engaging, and to be honest, more enjoyable experience for everybody involved using these techniques and it's good for the business it's good for the relationship friendship building it's good to get yourself out there and it's so easy to stand out like standing out as a business speaker is tough because it's not easy getting especially if you're looking to get paid speaking gigs but as soon as you start to become a little bit entertaining like if i even ask you to list now how many funny business speakers you know of, like you're probably not going to get to 10 uh, and th- th- there is obviously more than 10 out there, but they just don't come to mind as readily. So you can quickly be the crowd favorite in most of the talks that you give, or at least up there in the top two or three, by, by adding some items about yourself, your life, or some funny content and stories in there. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about um, your uh, your friend Arash and yeah. Help Hope Alive. And, get, and we'll wrap up on this, but I'd love to... I think you have a really awesome story. You alluded to him earlier about his public speaking. Yeah. So like he obviously hadn't done any and we kind of realized that the key to getting the message out there and he was raising support of uh, um, an awareness around people with severe spinal cord injuries. Uh, public speaking was a huge was, way. Was he himself injured? That. Yeah. Yeah. He suffered a severe spinal cord injury. His insurance cut him off and basically said, yeah, you're not going to walk again and we're not going to fund a recovery. So as his friends, we started to do a bunch of fundraisers and stupidly or not, I don't know, I suggested a comedy show because I knew a comedian at the time and then everyone was like, well, you have to host it. Uh, and it was to not look like an idiot because I absolutely hated public speaking, but my American friends didn't know just how bad I was as a, I hosted it. And that's kind of what set off this whole sequence of events. So it was kind of cool that at the end, somebody asked me to come speak at a TEDx event and I suggested suggested that he have a look at Arash who'd just given his first talk and we sent him on the video and the guy booked him straight away and he became like the, the closer at this uh, one of the higher level TEDx events and, and he crushed it so yeah he's he's doing really well he's progressing he's starting to stand up and do things that people told him he would never do oh, again no yeah, it's pretty cool. And but the the public speaking has been a, a key part of it for him in, in telling and structuring his story and he's writing a book at the moment and and ten percent of my proceeds actually from my book and, and the conference we do go to him as well and until he's fully back on his feet. That's awesome. Yeah, so it was been cool and it, it was so cool, cool to be able to help him with his talk and literally like it's a very serious topic. So a lot of people will say, oh, humor is not appropriate for my topic. I mean, humor is not appropriate for the area of spinal cord injury, but it's such a tough subject to talk about that there's a tension in the room and that, and that laughter can make a big difference. And my, uh, you might know Maizun Zaid who has a talk uh, on cerebral palsy, 99 problems, but the palsy ain't one. Uh, It's an amazing TED talk. It gets a laugh per minute count of nearly four per minute. I mean, she is a comedian, so that's why it's one of the funniest TED talks you'll ever watch. But you'll see all these techniques used with a subject you would think is not appropriate. And I guess my argument is always humor is always appropriate because we all like it. Cool. This has been awesome. Thanks for uh, coming on. Thank you for joining us this week on the podcast. This is Ryan Williams. Make sure you check out InfluencerEconomy.com for all archives of every show. We have 83 up till now with David's episode. Check out his book, Do You Talk Funny? Seven Comedy Habits to Become a Better and Funnier Public Speaker. Additionally, if you wanted to get a free podcast tip sheet from me for how to start a podcast or how to launch any idea in the modern media age, email me, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. Heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot.